thank you. I've never been called quintessential. <laughs> I really like that. <laughs> Delighted to be here. And um, I love this place. It's so wonderful. And extraordinary people, always. So thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you, all of you, for coming. Um, I was planning to read from this novel that I just finished and sent off about two weeks ago. And I was going through it again today. And I realized that I usually can do that. I can find things within a novel that function very well to be read aloud. And I found this novel. It's a strange novel. It kind of weighed into it. And it slowly, slowly heats up. And it just sort of heats up more and more. And then it gets really hot towards the end. But, it, but it's a slow process. It's not a very big novel. But it definitely demands, I think, a kind of slow immersion. <laughs> so I thought, no, that's not a good idea. And, and, and then it occurred to me as well that there are many people here who are doing so many different things. So artists as well as writers, fiction writers, as well as poets and sculptors and painters. And I realized that a bunch of short little things that I wrote um, a while back now, I think this book came out about six, six years ago, called The One Marvelous Thing. I started it, I had a fellowship at, at Marfa um, from the Lannan Foundation, and and it's it's an art town, and I found my, myself writing these small, sort of dark, aggravated pieces there, and that led to the entire book. I thought this might be a good night to read them. Also, it's been a cold and miserable winter, and these are sort of short, and and they're fun. So, so I'll read from the one marvelous thing, and and also two recent, uh, very, very short stories as well that aren't about artists, but hopefully it'll be fun. So I'll begin with them. Um, this one isn't fun, but it's short. The ghost slipped into bed beside me. His timing was bad. I was in bed with my lover who left the room. In the voice of a brat sucking sweets, the ghost asked, why do you let him thread your needle? I clenched my teeth in answer. Why, the ghost persisted, do you fuck when you know the flesh is mud? I ground my teeth then, making the sound of bone against bone. Seizing me, the ghost pulled me close and whispered, Why do you screw when it is the dead who are alone? In its cage, my heart hammered out its answer. Okay, these are very new little pieces, odd little pieces. Um, this one, Schmerz, came from a, a dear friend who believes in self-help books, and she gave me one that aggravated me, which may, may be familiar with the, the book I'm talking about. So Schmerz. Schmerz was not doing well. Her rod had dropped her, and she was snarled up. The file suggested she summon her demon, visualize her demon, until it materialized in her mind's eye. She concentrated, and in an instant, her very own demon appeared, frumpy and in a snit. Oddly dressed in quaint pantaloons, he took a step forward and introduced himself. His name was Bollocks. She downloaded the rest of the file for directions, and then knew to ask Bollocks what it was he wanted. Bollocks handed her a very small spoon with a serrated edge, like the spoons used for eating grapefruit. He told Schmerz to scoop out her heart's scum and feed it to him, one mouthful at a time. It had not occurred to her that there was scum in her heart. She thought her heart was more like a small bag of salt water. 
But Bollocks insisted on the scraping and spooning of her scum, and so she lay down on the floor with the heater on in what was once called the summer room before things got colder, and she scraped and fed Bollocks with her mind. The file was now beeping companionably beside her, glowing a soft green, the color of fresh peas. It said the demon would become very fat before achieving satisfaction. Then it would go away. For this to turn out well, Schmerz needed to feed Bollocks with humility and loving kindness. But Schmerz saw how horrid he was, ravenous, with row after row of gleaming needle teeth and a paunch that ballooned out over his toes. She breathed and scraped and radiated compassion as best she could for well over an hour before taking fright and texting Fugelman, the therapist, with whom she had often less than satisfactory interactions. Fugelman could not be reached, and when she peered back into the inner realm where Bollocks, still not replete, had made himself at home, her anxiety worsened. According to the file, which was now emanating a pearly tangerine haze, there was bound to be more than one demon. Bollocks was the demon of unfulfillment, a common enough demon. It was not unusual for Vorlooper, the demon of distress, to show up next. Schmeritz let out a yelp when Vorlooper appeared, bowed and stiffly handed her his own damned, serrated spoon. The two of them had found a couple of folding chairs, and there they sat, hungry and getting fatter in her mind's eye. Their little legs were so short, their feet didn't touch the ground, and their paunches seemed to be writhing with snakes. She could not help but notice how trippy their outfits were. They were both dressed in yellow and green and wore pointy, canary-colored suede boots. Schmerz told herself she was a good old girl with plenty of scum and vinegar to go around. She scraped and scraped away and spoon-fed her two demons, taking a brief moment out, brief moment out to crack a small private joke. If only I were spooning with Rod. But this only caused a third demon to appear, the demon of longing, Tricotine, who showed up in a pink taffeta skirt ready, it seemed, to party. Schmerz could see in the haze behind Tricotine a host of demons, and even though Fugelman had told her to dissolve her Rod in the acid of her mind, she set about to visualize him. And suddenly there he was. He had texted her. The text said, What you doing? Schmerz texted back, Oh, just hanging. <laughs> Little fairy tale. Moonlit, her, and the other one. There was once a man in her life, as thimbled as the moon, and small enough to straddle her finger. There was so much wrong with him. But to give him credit, his defects were all on the outside, unless you counted the abject filth jammed inside his brains. But these days, who does? The other one in her life was as tall as a steeple and as thin as a needle. The boys in the street threw their soda cans at him, and the biddies emptied the alehouse spittoons on his head. She liked neither of these men, but had little choice in the matter. As her mother instructed, a lump cannot argue with fate. So she married them both, and off they went together, moonlit holding her left hand and the other one her right. Soon they reached the rental cottage in the woods. The walls were made of straw, the floor was nicely spread with cow flops, and the roof was stuck in place with recycled mustard plaster. The landlady had stocked the refrigerator with a pickled trotter, and because it was their honeymoon, a bitter bottle of cider. 
The bride provided three meatballs stolen from her mother's fry pan and warmed in her pocket. Once she had brushed the dust from everybody's boots, they sat down to their little feast and made the best of it. After Moonlit had sucked his cider, forked the trotter, and gummed his meatball, he projected a terrific blast, which was, in fact, not unfamiliar. When she politely asked how he made his livelihood, he told her it was he who made the thunder. Other one, she asked then, looking to the ceiling where her second husband's head scraped the lamp's underside. How do you make your livelihood? Oh, that, he said. I hold up the sky with my head. I'll be getting up early. These words struck a profound chord in her heart, and she proposed they get ready for sleep. She noted that she alone washed her feet and the undesignated place where her legs came together. Then the three of them went to bed. Hopefully, she said, how happy I am. But no one heard her because both her husbands were fast asleep. This caused some confusion, but also relief. And they warmed her, these two odd husbands of hers. For the first time in memory, she would sleep in a warm bed. She thought she was far from home and far from the village, yet hadn't she always been far from everything, even in her mother's house, where she had been stored in the attic? Now she had two husbands, which must count for something. And weren't the three of them nicely tucked into bed together? It's not as though I've been sent packing to outer space, she thought. When at last she fell asleep, she dreamed that a substantial meal was steaming on a shelf just out of reach. She smelled noodles, melted butter, fritters stuffed with jam. Outside, the air was so cold you could have sawed it in half. In the middle of the night, Moonlit, who was really too little for marriage, tumbled to the floor and rolled under the refrigerator where he vanished. Startled by the commotion, the other one sat up all too quickly and cracked his head open on the ceiling. All this was never known, nor could it be, because the next morning the sky did not come up, the birds fell off their perches, the moles froze in their burrows, and in the fields the corn toppled to the ground, just as if it had been cursed. Okay. This, this book, um, The One Marvelous Thing, was illustrated by a wonderful artist, Tom Motley, who calls himself a cartooniologist. So he, he did these, it's hard to see them, but these wonderful illustrations. And um, this one, I, I'm going to read the story. She thinks dots. All different kinds, and they include um, often little hidden puzzles and things. These are some of his robots. I have a story about robots. And then he, he made some, uh, some cartoon, some comics for a couple of the stories as well. Tom Motley. Okay. These stories actually started the book. I also have a story um, about a a writing residency program. <laughs> Grumpy as well. <laughs> um, painter. They have given him a spacious studio. He has six months to complete his project. He persists in working on canvas. This is considered anomalous, and so he is grateful. The studio overlooks the previous artist's project a series of 50 concrete ears exactly 30 feet high. 
plagued by a delicate constitution, his painting is disrupted by an irrational idea that the ears are party to his mind. He abandons his brushes and builds himself a tall ladder. He uses this to peer down into the first ear. Shouting, he precipitates a deafening echo. He suffers an imperious need to shout into each ear and does so over the next 10 days. Overwhelmed by tinnitus, he is soon incapacitated. He begins to bark. His estranged wife is flown in from Tuscaloosa to coax him down from his ladder. She deposits him in a safer place. (laughs) Poet. She is a poet, and as long as she can remember, she has been viscerally anxious. Despite her insomnia, she accepts a fellowship from the Fossil Fuel Foundation. The fellowship affords her the time she needs to write about her insomnia and its causes. Her book will be titled, The Greenhouse as Gas Chamber. She thinks dots. Surrealism is in the doghouse, as is the pyramid and the triangle. She thinks dots because so many are into squares and straight lines. Everyone marvels at the persistence of cubes. Dots are powerfully feminine. Think nipple, breast, and cunt hole, asshole. <laughs> there, there she's, she's thinking asshole. <laughs> Thumbtacks. My pieces are set out on 11 square acres of level land in North Dakota. Visitors, mostly Europeans, hoping to catch a glimpse of redskins have a tendency to make cracks about my so-called imperialist tendencies. Why so many, they ask. This is a land of plenty, assholes, I say, get a grip. My pieces are made of stainless steel. They will persist long after the last puffin has laid the last egg. Like the politicos of this great country of ours, they are big, heavy, and redundant. But hey, America is the land of redundancy par excellence. Excuse my fries. Speaking of France, did you know that Louis XIV had a hall of mirrors in which he could see himself replicated to infinity? Walking down that hall, a short, fat, astigmatic clockmaker knew he was king. The Industrial Revolution, the triumph of capital, global warming, pop art, pop tart started here, and moving pictures, all the things we love. Recently, a very blonde babe from Holland called me a megalomaniac to my face. Listen, honey, I said, here anybody worth their salt is a megalomaniac. American art is all about exuberance, I told her, money to burn, engorgement. This little speech happened to turn her on, thank you very much, and with the blessings of Uncle Sam, we enjoyed more than a few rounds of Ring Around the Rosie and not a negligible number of repeat performances of Ding Dong Duda Day. <laughs> Koi. I wish you could see these drawings. I mean, he's got these wonderful little drawings of, of the art that I... I mentioned, and other things of his own invention. You can look at it after. For 30 years, the gallery is her fiefdom. It gives her status and access to men, although now that she has hit middle age and the collision has left bruises, the young studs are taking their stuff to a rival across town. 
Meanwhile, her own stable boys are growing old fast. They are bitter. Their bowels are irritable. They expect her to do more. She reminds them that the interest in art has fallen because of bin Laden, the cost of organics, of home furnishings, and pharmaceuticals. Once two of her boys had made a big impression in Seattle. For two months, they defined cutting edge. Tyler Zip had exhibited 120 pit bulls made out of black umbrellas beside crisp bananas mountain of blue spaghetti. Crisp had boiled spaghetti for six weeks and shipped it slicked down with oil to Seattle in barrels. Now they and the others are turning to softer effects in an attempt to loosen the local yuppies' Italian wallets. Two examples. Jack Quicker builds coffee table-sized silicone cake studded with plastic bonsai, and Nip Tuck upholsters discarded furniture with freeze-dried tangerines. Four weeks ago, he had papered the gallery, gallery walls with citrus peels and nailed plastic sushi to the floor. Shrugged off by the critics, the show has only just come down. How exhausted she is. Recently, she has undergone surgery and looks younger, if almost strange, as though the surgery revealed a latent gene. She wonders if there is a place, an island maybe as yet undiscovered, where people all look like this. Oh, it is subtle, like coy. Her boys call for loans. They smell of nicotine and tar. Her openings are undermined by their tendency to corner enthusiasts, all non-smokers, and bully them. Her rival's boys smoke keef. Good stuff, flowery, exotic. Her openings smell of paradise and rock with laughter. Looking back to Seattle with nostalgia and clearly losing touch, she agrees when Tyler Zip proposes to flood the floor with pages torn from old copies of Kafka's Metamorphosis and, woefully naked, climb into a bathtub crepitating with centipedes. Although she keeps up with pop culture, it does not occur to her that the critics might falter for offering up a poor imitation of a wildly popular TV show in which men and women bed down each week with nastiness and filth. Opening night, the gallery thrums with the whine of several million recorded mosquitoes. The artist is arrested for indecency, publicity of a kind, but she must pay to bail him out of jail. Before she knows what is happening, the city health commissioner has sent over a brigade dragging hoses. They chase everybody out and soak the place with poisons. Attracted by the sound of mosquitoes, endangered bats are caught up in the fray. Their terrible bodies litter the street. She is sued by both the city and the Sierra Club. <laughs> Ruined, she is forced to sell to, to a beautiful Asian teenager named Kiku, who quickly makes a name for herself designing exotic muffins. The muffins are baked on the premises. Kiku exhibits sexually provocative portraits of kiwi and papaya. Her scene couldn't be hotter. Should one of the stable boys wander in from habit, he is shown the door. Somewhere in here, I've got one on the writers, so it's only fair. <laughs> oh, where is it? It's early on. Anybody here um, speak Italian, by the way? Oh, good, because if, if we, because <laughs> I have, <laughs> I have one story with some Italians. So if there's time, I'll read it um, about a sculptor. look this up. Sorry. This was all last minute, so I'm... Hmm. 
have two stories named Koi, so it just con it confuses me. Okay. And this is a kind of, actually, this was based on something that happened. Um, but um, it's, it's a kind of amalgam of, of places where, where I've, I've um, taught creative writing. And usually the experience is really wonderful, but sometimes very strange things happen. And uh, so um, this came out of uh, a, a pretty wild experience and some kind of a collage of some other occasions over the years. Already dangerously overextended, the summer program director is hyperventilating. The visiting writers have landed. Some are drunk, some stoned. One throws fits. Subject to boils, the creative nonfiction person sobs in the infirmary. <laughs> For months, the SPD has been daily humiliated by his chair, an inexplicable narcissist who, in his briefly overrated youth, nailed the only job he'd ever have, and this before he failed to live up to absolutely everyone's expectations, those of his publisher, his colleagues, students, and wives. <laughs> only his children, who had come into the world without expectations, have not been disappointed. Of his promise persists his abundant hair, always an asset and failure, and a temper sharp enough to cut cheese. In the grips of an irresistible fantasy, the summer program director exhales. He inhales, despite himself, he breathes. His fantasy. Perched on the chapel roof, invisible and utterly alone, he plays hacky sack as the entire campus burns. <laughs> Merrily, the dinner bell is ringing. Seeing the participants cross the lawn, the SPD is overcome with sadness. He knows they are about to be treated to bad food, unlike here. <laughs> and starting promptly at 9 a.m., mortification. Some have acquired a habit of self-abasement. Others, new to the program, will be taken down a peg and even suffer physical harm on the part of the poets and writers. When was that curious distinction first made and why? Not one of whom is visible, but instead enjoying a more hospitable elsewhere, drinking the good local beer and gnawing ribs. Memories of recent humiliations plague him. His new office, once a janitor's closet, is smaller than the last one. However, it has a window, a postmodern architect's version of an ox eye. As a line on the lawn snakes into the commons, he watches. Only two brief decades earlier, he had stood in a similar line, balancing a tray of bologna, quesadillas, and weeveled beans so horrible he had complained. Such spunk he had had then. When was it that he had ceased to complain? The smell of burned gravy fills the air. Everything, he mutters, is defective. Even his own writing, which he has not dared look at in years, the yellowed pages is peppered with frass as an ill-kept pantry. He rises. He has promised the creative nonfiction person that he will look in on her. To do this, he must run the gauntlet of dead trustees who bear down upon him from their, f from their foaming frames. Somewhere, a desperate squirrel scuttles in a deep chimney. How, he wonders, can he be expected to endure another instant? Mild as a goat, he steps onto the path. He does not wish to be recognized, and in this he is not disappointed. It irritates him that the campus appears to be constructed of thick slices of salty ham. Passing the koi pool, he thinks how easy it would be to poison their water. 
Longing for lightning, he glares at the horrible clock tower mortared with mustard and roofed in pastrami. Exhausted, his bitterness enveloping him like a mantle of dung, he does not see the poet lying face up in the path. He is sent flying, badly skinning his knees. What has happened? Unmistakably, she is dead. She smells of fish and is clenching her teeth. Like his chair, she too had once been vastly overestimated. In the sky, a mysterious ball hovers. The SPD is so agitated he does not recognize the sun. A buzz of concern brings him fully to his senses. I should probably say that nobody died. That's <laughs> I would not have written the story in this way. A surprisingly large number of participants are on cell phones and women of various ages in confirmation. Their navel studs mocking him, Neil Keening in the murderously green grass. The infirmary, always seriously understaffed, is close at hand and, as in a dream, the poet's body is hastened away. He relishes its absence, although painfully aware that the 18 anarcho-dataists who have signed up for her class are closing in. In a pinch, his wife can take over, although she was or had been, in the full promise of her youth, a neo-formalist. A terrible blow, he lies agreeably as the poets circle him like wasps around an open bottle of vinegar. With misgiving, he approves their earnest request to devote the next evening to a reading of the corpse's oeuvre, which he has always mistrusted. He tells them that Malva can fill in the gap in a pinch, a phrase he cannot repeat to his wife over dinner without succumbing to a fit of mad laughter. Malva is, as she is so often, furious with him. They're anarcho-dataists, she screams, her lovely brow knotted with loathing. They've declared a fatwa, a neo-formalism. They'll eat me alive. They're also masochists, he says this hopefully. Tell them to go out into the country and hurl themselves into barbed wire and write about it. Tell them to hurt themselves with hammers and to write about it. For the last time, he attempts to gather her into his arms. I'm in the mood for love, he croons, attempting whimsy only because you're near me. <laughs> the phone rings. They stand in silence as the message machine informs them in real time of a deepening crisis. The anarcho-dataists are demanding the corpse for the rest of the week. After all, they have paid for it. <laughs> His chair is sympathetic, and he is disinclined to reimburse tuition. Already it is clear that the poet's family is not eager to claim it. Sometime after midnight, the town council exceptionally convened authorize a transfer of the body to the koi pool, now hastily emptied of water and fish and filled with ice. At dawn, photographs of the installation are taken and emailed to cerebral cortex. They are accepted for immediate publication online. Beautiful and black lycra, Malva stands in a swarm of anarcho-dataists in the hostile pose that will make her internationally notorious within the hour and precipitate her head first into the vortex of a hip and thoroughly disagreeable crowd. She will take to wearing lizard skin pants, her unblemished forehead threaded with ball bearings, her clitoris with thorns. It is a Friday night. The last rider has been returned to the air and the corpse airborne also and in Malva's care wends its way to Munich. There it will be transmuted into plastic cubes. Malva has been asked to curate the cubes in Barcelona. The chair has flown off also to accept a minor award in Romania. The summer program director finds himself alone, more desperately alone than he had ever imagined or intended to be. How's the time? We're good? Plenty of time? Okay. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so I try the story with the Italian. <laughs> okay, so the name Julia, which is spelled G-U-I-L-I-A, is it is it Julia or Gulia or Gilia? It's the main characters. <laughs> Gilia. Gilia. Gilia would be the soft G. Uh-huh. And so I think it would be Gilia. I think it's a hard one. So how would you say it? I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. 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 i he did a wonderful drawing of a plate of spaghetti in which there's a dragon, actually. If you look closely, it's not a plate of spaghetti at all. It's really a dragon. So, what did we say? Gia? That's, that, well, it's G-U or G-I? G-I-U. Oh, no, G-I would be a soft G. <laughs> it's like she, she, C-I is a chef, and it's a soft, soft, so just say Julia. Julia. <laughs> <laughs> you go, go, Julia. Huh? I know that. You did the G-I, she's right. Gilia. Gilia, okay. Hiram first saw Gilia on her knees in the Ognisanti. I've always liked, he'd later joke with his friends, to see a pretty woman on her knees. And Gilia had been pretty, if a bit thick in the ankles and waist. Her pale blonde hair was too thin. She was too quiet, although it aggravated Hiram whenever she attempted a few words in public. It was her accent, he told her, that so frustrated him, although once he had found it charming. I like to see a pretty woman stumble over her own tongue. What's more, she was too serviceable, a real ox, although he expected her to anticipate his need, something hot to drink, something cool. The chisels sharpened just so, the bills paid, the table set, and the meal served within moments of his return to the house after a long day in the studio, the meat tender and well-seasoned. From the kitchen window, Gilia monitored Hiram's moods. She was loyal. Because to create a work of art involves risk, and an uneventful domesticity allowed him to dance with his demons, the bright demons of his genius. Besides, didn't she rule the roost? It had been her task to erase uncertainty from his daily life, to assure a well-orchestrated household. As a girl, she had studied the viola. Often she thinks in musical terms. His voice when he calls her, spiccato, her response, con anima. Once, when he was feeling more kindly toward her, having feasted with friends on the rabbit she had prepared, her incomparable polenta, he acknowledged that together they played a good game a good game of complicity. These words had reassured her. They were the evidence that things were not as bad as they seemed. She served the coffee, vivacissimo. Um, Hiram noticed, what makes the ox dance, he thundered, his laughter bouncing off the walls. There is a painting by Raphael, a Saint George and the Dragon, in which a blonde dressed in muted scarlet kneels in the grass praying. Gilia on her knees is like her, still and pale. Silently retreating behind the folds of a heavy velvet curtain, Hiram makes a close study of Gilia's face and body. Her eyes are fine. 
If her chin is too fleshy, still she is very like da Vinci's portrait of a girl holding a weasel. And her body, her body is lovely. Yet like her face, it isn't perfect, or rather, it is perfect because it brings to mind the thickened, somewhat clumsy bodies painted by his, love, by his beloved Giotto. When she stands and turns to go, Hiram slips as gracefully as he can from the shadows, and in his impoverished Italian whispers that she is wonderfully formed. Gilia laughs. What is this funny, charming, barrel-chested stranger trying to say? What uniform? She's wearing no uniform. Yes, timid Gilia laughs. Hiram takes Gilia's hand and presses it to the cold marble of a statue. He attempts to explain that this is his medium, marble. She sees how it sparkles as if studded with grains of sand. And then they are together in the street, a familiar street flooded with the rich buttery light of late afternoon. And she is walking beside him, an American, like the ones who liberated Europe, who stood high above the crowds in their tanks and trucks, tossing giocolato, the taste so powerful, Gilia nearly faints in her nona's arms. And he is so much older than she, he could be her papa, and this emboldens her. I like wax better, she tells him. She is thinking of the statues of the saints, so uncannily lifelike. Wax, she tells him, is warmer. Wax, she repeats, and he, because he does not understand, runs back to the church to buy candles, thick yellow candles that fill her arms like flowers. Unable to contain her laughter, never has Gilia laughed like this, she attempts to set him straight. Sera, sera! And he thinks he thinks she wants to dine, sonare, to dine. He is jubilant. If Hiram's vocabulary is limited to the great moments in Italian art, he also knows the names of things to eat. Here they are together at table, and Hiram orders an enormous quantity of food for them both. Supetta, he shouts it, supetta di cannelloni. Tomorrow, he shouts, prosciutto. He means next, she tells the waiter, not tomorrow, but now. With olives, Hiram cries, con olive. And he tells her that she is carina, she is caramella, which makes her laugh even more. La frigola, he tells the waiter as he pours out the house wine, con case e vongole. <laughs> Sorry, guy. Vongole, she attempts to correct him. He tells her she is carosina, which utterly bewilders her because it is the word for pram. She ceases to laugh and instead blushes. Over soup, he finally manages to convey that he is a builder of statues. She is impressed. She asks him if his statues seem alive, for in her mind, these are the best, like the ones in wax, she tells him, because they are almost human. I like their eyes. Gilia touches her own. They look so human. Do his statues look alive? Looking into his pocket dictionary that spills its leaves onto his knees, he says, no, no, alive is not his intention. Emozione, this is what he wishes to convey. Complex, what is it? Complesso, si, complesso, emozione. A man of genius mu must invent his own forms. How can he explain this to her? Hiram's emotions are always complex. He would worship this girl. He would lick the bones that move above her breasts and wing their way to her shoulders. He would push himself against her heavy form to quicken it. He sits back and gazes at her, watching her suck a clam from its shell, watching her tear her bread. As always, when a woman interests him, he assesses her as an object in space. Lapidare. Gilia gazes up at Hiram. 
She understands that he works in stone. She tells him that if until this moment she has preferred wax over stone, it is because wax is like flesh and the glass eyes, how she admires them. She has never said this much to anyone. Ma, she acknowledges, but marble lasts longer. Your statues, she tells him, they will last forever, per sempre, forever. This, she decides, makes Hiram straordinario, remarkable. Never has she been so clever. She cannot wait to tell her sister how clever she has been. She has told a man he is straordinario, and he has told her an American word, remarkable. Their courtship. Bocancini di Manzo lasts a week. Here is a man, she tells her sister, who knows how to, how to enjoy life's pleasures. Gilia is 19. The next thing she knows, she is standing over her hot stove in a small farmhouse kitchen in northern Vermont. Valutata, taglioni, grease spatters and hits the stone floor. Now Gilia is almost 60, and her man, the man she has struggled so desperately to both please and forgive, is failing. There had always been other women, which makes it harder to be compassionate. Women who, as the years passed, became younger, much younger than she. Yet she could not blame him. After all, he was a great man, a remarkable man, or so they had both thought. Although a great man would not have been abandoned by the world as he has been. The last time the people from the gallery came to see his work, oh, that was years ago now, they did not stay for lunch. As they walked back to their car, she overheard them talking about Hiram. They said he was stuck. They called the work dated, dated. When she had first discovered his infidelities, she had shouted, she, she who had never shouted at anyone, not ever, not even as a child. And she had sobbed. He told her she was behaving like the wife of a postman, the wife of a grocer. This she did not want to do. She learned to hold her head high at the supermarket of the dry cleaners. She did all she could to squeeze every last drop of bile from her bitterness so that it came to resemble worldliness. She was thought to be haughty. She dressed in the eccentric threads of the successful artist's wife. She was the only woman in town to own an ecot coat and scarves made of batik. If one ate at her table, the linens were all authentic Japanese indigo. Of these dinners, the food was exquisite and Gilia silent. When the drinking got serious, she left the room. Hiram had aged badly, ill-tempered and gouty. He throws his shoes, he curses her, he curses the entire universe. These days he needs a cane, he is bitter. Old age is a personal affront, an unforgettable humiliation. And then there is that other thing that she has never allowed herself to think about, that other thing, its subversive power threatens to annihilate them both. The truth, there, nah, she'll say it. She leaves her kitchen and goes out into the yard to say it. Gigantic, too big to be moved without a great deal of fuss and bother and expense, and now nobody wants them. Hiram statues dwarf the yard. Gigantic and ugly, ugly as sin. Nothing she has ever seen is uglier. Bruto! Gilia shouts this until she can shout no more. Bruto, bruto! She feels as though a swarm of bees have taken possession of her skull. When she returns to her kitchen, Gilia gazes at her reflection in the mirror. The little mirror beside the sink where, over the years, she has hastily dabbed her lips with rouge, reddening her lips in case a remarkable man chooses to kiss them. Why, she wonders, why did she become the sort of woman who spends a lifetime on her knees scrubbing spattered grease off the floor so that some mean bastard can walk on it? When Gilia was a child, her father told her a story she found especially fascinating. Sinyas, the hero of Cyprus, promised Agamemnon 50 boats so that he should prove victorious at Troy. But when the boats arrived, they were all toys made of clay, with crews of clay. Gilia's marriage to Hiram reminds her of this story.
there time for one more? Is that it? I meant to. It's a quarter till. Should we do one more? Let's see. Hmm. Um, a wild child about based on a real character, somebody who really existed, who was found wild, had been abandoned in the woods, or a, a love story about robots. Wild child. Wild child. <laughs> <laughs> in those years, when I bounded about on all fours and on my elbows fled those I feared, when, in those lucent days, I scaled trees fast as a cat and sailed the treetops as the squirrels do, spreading their wings of fur and flesh, I was, I assure you, a better creature for all that, my desires both innocent and private and what's more easily assuaged. When I thirsted for blood, I killed a thing a rabbit, say, a squirrel sees sleeping in its nest, a green snake, a rat fat from the leavings in the fields. There were none to balk, none to scold me, no one there to hide her face in dismay beneath her apron's ample hem. I had seen plenty of bats and frogs, but never a priest, nor had I heard the words nun or needle or butter and bread, although they say I must have been acquainted with human speech because I was quick to learn a thing or two, and this despite my ferocious attempts to stop them, to stop their constant jabbering, like crowds of crows they were blackening the mind with their needling and nagging until I could no longer bear it. In order to taste the food they denied me for days and their righteous need to have me tamed, I, although their porridge and chops were like dead leaves in my mouth and their drear puddings plaster, I'd have preferred a fistful of fur or last winter's bone black with frost and green with neglect. I cried out from the cellar and up through the floorboards as best I could, I repent! And this between my pretty clenched teeth, for yes, in those days my teeth were pretty and people came to see them. Stealing a look when my patron, my master, would slide his fingers into my mouth to peel the lips way back. What fine teeth the wild girl has, see the pretty blush on her gums. I'd show my tongue, seized as it was between my master's thumb and forefinger, as when in the wild one seizes frogs in their boudoirs of wet grass. If they wanted more, I'd bug out my eyes, the whites burning brighter than the sunlight in those yellow days before I was forced into the bondage of roasted meat and venomous alphabets and spelling books and needlework and hymns, stinking of the frass of centipedes and roots, boiled to pap, I repent! I cried up to them because I was hungry, having for who knows how many days chewed my boots in the fury of my banishment, the cellar darker and colder than the bunghole of a corpse. I chewed and recalled the taste of a hare's crisp ear, its liver sweet as berries. You'll burn for sure, they shouted it through the cracks as I clung to my knees to keep myself from gnawing my own fists. The devil's on his way right now to fetch you and set you on fire. I'd sipped my tears, the piss that in my banishment was the only thing that warmed me. Once I yelled at them with all the fury in my heart, let me go back then, back to the woods, and I will drink squirrel blood and play with the bright beetles and bubbles in the stream. What business I offered rationally, or so I thought, is it of yours? For you see, I was not yet broken, I would not repent. I would not kneel, as they said I must, to kiss the cold brass cross as bitter as the corpse of a spider. 
I could see no purpose in it, nor the sense of forcing my feet into those boots, the clothes that fisted up between my legs, the baths, the bath brushes, the combing, scourings, pairings. I could not see it. A needle plied over and over into the white cloth, the prayers, the supplications, the answering to a name they claimed was now mine. What need, I'd asked, for a name? When all the creatures have but one name, the same name that bounds through the air like dust motes and rain. Marie, they'd spit at me as nails are spit from the mouth of a carpenter. Marie, Angelique Leblanc, as though to call me Mary and Angel and the White could tame me and keep me safe like a lock of dead hair in a box. Ha, as if they could do that. But then in the cellar I grew hungry. See, I grew peevish. Chained like a parrot to a post, I grew weary, and to tell the truth, fearful for my mind. So at last I called up to them, humble, yet loud enough to be heard. I repent, I repent. Yes, yes, that's it. I do. And if the little Jesus will have me, I'll marry him, quick as Jack and Jill go tumble. I'll beg our Father for, for forgiveness, see? They listened, their ears to the floor. And then they discussed my case. I could hear them pace back and forth, back and forth, as foxes do above the dwelling of a hare. They'd let me stew for my own good. Yes, stew, they whispered. My ears are very, very sharp in her ah, own juices. So that was it. Well, I was hungry, and I'd be slavish. I no longer cared. Prithee, I'd said. Prithee, I'll wed Jesus. I'll let him suckle my tits. I'll grovel before his little manger, as the worms grovel deep in their muddy realms. I'll polish the silver, and stir the porridge, and ply the needle, like the prig you wish me to be. I'll eat my pudding with a spoon, and thank the Lord for it. Although, it's meat I want. Raw and smoking, the taste of it purple on my tongue. Wind me up and I'll perform for thee like a toy of tin upon a wire. I'll dance for Jesus, poor boy, tugging at his nasty nails that pin him to that strange tree of his as a crow is nailed to a barn wall. I'll do a jig, I'll curtsy and run about in circles in imitation of the toy monkey my patron's daughter loves to set spinning on the kitchen tiles. How I loathe those toys of hers. I see no purpose there, I see purpose only. And fat marrow bones, the soft throats of mice. Mice I once throttled in a trice. Those are my patron's words. Oh, I'd eat clay over pudding any day. I once told my patron how much I admired his little daughter's throat, how to see the blood rushing there behind the ear stirred old memories. And when he blanched, I reassured him, and the child, so quick to weep, reassured them both in those dulcet tones they taught me. Oh, but I have found the Lord, and he has shown me another, a better way. The way of roasted mutton and mittens and mattresses and bedroom slippers. The way of light and love, your dear child, the precious poppet, the angel, the dove, is safe with me. Fear not, master, fear not, my doll, my rosebud, my little mouse. See? And lifting the bright cross from my bosom, I dangled it in the sunlight before her face until she grew jolly and laughed. Then, to press my point, and with the money I make showing myself to strangers, for I sit in the parlor on Wednesday to speak to pious ladies about the woods and my once-upon-a-time life in the trees, I leapt from my chair and running into the lane, bought her sweets from the vendor who was ringing his bell and calling out, honey drops, chocolate drops, three kinds of berry drops, bright red cherry drops. So tightly did I clutch my coins, the palm of my hand was bruised black. Once they let me out of the cellar, I thought it best that I demonstrate my perfectibility, although to tell the truth, I prefer to converse with ravens and crows than these feeble-minded crones and bonnets who, should I absent-mindedly snap up and swallow a fly, will fall over backwards in a dead faint. They have decided I am no orangutan, but instead an Eskimo, because, like the savage girl I was, an Eskimo will eat her supper raw and sauced with blood. 
They have taken my club and replaced it with a needle and have seen to it that my hair is free of lice. I have lost all my teeth, but if this makes me less attractive, it also assures them that I am less a savage. After all, one cannot tear into a neck with one's gums. This is how I spend my days, sitting in a chair, boots on, stays on, hair and pins, plying my needle as a bee plies the blossom, in and out, in and out. Wind me up and I mutter all the holy holies you wish. I make red poppies blossom at the edge of tea napkins. My poppies are too red for the dining room. I am as tidy as a drawer full of my patron's underwear. And when on a Wednesday I'm asked, I say, well, in the woods, I ran as naked as a snake and as black as an iron cooking pot. I would eat clay and the hot red hearts of sparrows. I would sleep in deep beds of brown leaves and bracken. And I would fly through the air as a squirrel does its wings of fur and flesh stretched out like sails. And when the moon was full, I'd laugh out loud to see how fat it was, fat as the white belly of a frog near bursting with flies. Having said this, and it is astonishing how often they wish to hear it, I sit back and watch them shudder and shift about on their chairs, their bottoms rolling, this way and that, like marbles in a boy's pocket. Their eyes sparked with excitement, yes. Their eyes sparked with something like envy. Thank you.